Welcome to Vermont Artists and Authors, where we interview great storytellers and artists from the amazing Green Mountain State. This is episode 29. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the internationally respected historian and writer, Andrew Liptak. How's it going, Andrew? Hi. Internationally famous is probably if you include Canada. <laughs> well, see, it's true, though, right? Yeah. Over there. It's like yeah. the Burlington International Airport is international <laughs> on a technicality. <laughs> so you're coming out with you're coming out with uh, you had an anthology book that came out, but this is the first book that you're coming out that you uh, wrote yourself from from the back, correct? That's right. Yeah. So, oh, geez, that's a blast from the past. Uh, 2014, 2015, I published. I, I co-edited an anthology called War Stories with uh, Jam Gates, and we published it mm -hmm. through Apex Publications. And that was a our attempt at um, trying to put a slightly new spin on military science fiction. We didn't want to do sort of like the guts and glory, sort of jingoistic military SF stories that are out there. We wanted to, to, to really dig in on stuff that's um, sort of looking at the impact of warfare. And that comes out of my background um, from my education, I, I went to Norwich University in Vermont and I studied military history and mm. uh, Jam had uh, connections to the military community herself. So we we had met at a con and we wanted to sort of talk about, you know, what, like what is the, you know, how, how do we how do we sort of get some really good stories that are um, sort of looking at the impact of com of combat and, and conflict. And that was something that really appealed to us because we had seen the impacts either through veterans that we knew ourselves or um just look just looking at the news and um right. yeah we published it it's, it's still sort of we call it the little book that that still chugs along because it, it still <laughs> it still sells and people um i haven't gotten any emails about it lately but um it seems like people still read it and um hopefully are enjoying it we, we published some really right. great stories in it and um some of those authors have gone into really great things and um some are still folks i talk to these days so um, right. Yeah, but this cosplay of history is my first solo solo project, I guess. And even then, right. not really quite a solo project because there's a lot of people that sort of helped me along the way. Right. So talk to us a bit about this because you have this really interesting background of science fiction. You're part of the um, the, the the Star Wars cosplay cosplay scene, um, and also yep. military history. So you've kind of been able to you kind of drifted off into drifted into this, this direction of really getting into the cosplay scene. So what was your inspiration by putting this book together? So I, I talk about this in the introduction, sort of the, the introduction of the book. Um, mm. My background with cosplay starts way back in 2000, uh, 2003. Um, I was in high oh, school. Wow. Um, my, I had been interested in Star Wars, or sorry, I should say obsessed with Star Wars since uh, the special <laughs> editions came out in 2000, uh, sorry, 1997. 1997, yep. yep. <laughs> um, it, 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 I was at just like the perfect age. It, they really captured my imagination. And I distinctly remember um, on the way home thinking like, oh, the Stormtroopers are really cool. I wish I could dress up as one of them. So I thought about it like over over the years, like, you know, how do I make this armor? I, it, for some reason, it didn't really occur to me to make it out of... Out of um, like cardboard. I think I just, I wanted something that was sort of exact and not like cartoony or um, sort of cobbled together. I wanted something, I wanted an actual stormtrooper. Um, right. And for, 
I was in band. We played Star Wars at my final concert. Um, I think in no small part because I, I pestered our music director for six straight years to play it. And um, just to sort of make it special, I was like, all right, how do we, you know, how do we really make it, you know, memorable? And I had known about the 501st Legion. Um, and I convinced my music teacher to say, hey, we should invite these guys up. And they, uh, we sent out an invite and they, one of them came up, a guy named uh, Scott Allen. And we played the music. He walked in at the right time. The crowd went wild. And after the concert was over, <laughs> I went and asked, like, you know, how do I, you know, how do I do this? This is really like, I, I, you have you have what I want. And he he ended up um, letting me know, like, you know, he, I could, you know, send him a check uh, and he would send me the armor. Not, not the mm. armor he was wearing. He, he, he knew how to get an armor kit. And so he sort of acted as a middleman and, and ended up uh, later that summer I got one. And okay. um, I put it together. I didn't really do anything with it because I, I wasn't really aware of what conventions were at that time. Um, it wasn't until college that um, Star Wars Celebration 3 rolled around. That was in Indianapolis. And that was that would have been 2005, I think. And that was like, all right, I... I I, I think it was like it was right over spring break or right near spring break. So I ended up just, um, you know, buying a plane ticket, packed up my armor and flew out and met all, all the other Star Wars fans that were out there at the time. A lot of people in my garrison who I had not met at, in person and oh, wow. um, just got to stand around, you know, in a, you know, the big group picture. And um, yeah, that, that really sort of like, wow, this is like, you know, a thing I can do more of. And it, it sort of, it was a couple more years before I started trooping officially with the 501st. Um, I got out of college. I started uh, having, I had some disposable income and a job and a car so I could drive around uh, my area in New England and ended up um, going to uh, all sorts of events. I went to parades. I went, I was on uh, stage with Weird Al. I did uh, uh, charity walks. Basically anything I could do that was uh, like within a couple of hours driving distance. And that just, you know, I fell into this community of people who have since become, you know, extremely good friends and, mm. um, you know, people who were um, came to my wedding or were in my wedding. And, you know, anytime I traveled, you know, I could, I could reliably go and, um, you know, find somebody who was in the 501st and just like, you know, meet up with them at a bar or, or get a meal or, and just, you know, you know, you know the, the group is like a big, sort of like a big fraternity or big club. And in the way that, you know, we, have this sense of family uh, that mm. extends all over the world. Uh, so that was that's sort of where I started really getting into into the cosplay world. I had because um, through there I started going to conventions. Um, you know, a lot of the local ones that were are either here in Vermont. There were some little like gaming cons that had had sort of popped up that I would go to. It was like Boston Comic Con and Granite State Comic Con are in the region and. Um, you know, once you build one costume, you're like, all right, what else could I build? So I, I built a clone trooper from Attack the Clones. Um, <laughs> and then I, I built, uh, I, I made some other things like, like uh, the film Moon from uh, 2009, Duncan Jones' um, sort of small indie science fiction film. I, I made a jumpsuit with all the patches. I found all the patches, got a great jumpsuit. And, um, oh, cool. You know, that's, that's sort of my walking around costume because it's, it's comfortable. And it's a nice, nice little deep cut because not very many people recognize it. Um, I did Stargate. Um, more more recently, I've, I did a Belter jumpsuit because that was um, um, I'm a big fan of the Expanse. And you know, it's just like one of those things that I just sort of fell into the world of cosplay just because that's where my friends and you know sort of found family are. 
and so that's that's sort of the, the that's the, the cosplay part of my life. Um, a lot while this was happening, I was working um, at, at Norwich University and wasn't terribly thrilled with the desk job there. So I ended up sort of falling sideways into journalism. I, I interned with IO9 and wrote for places like Kirkus Reviews and um, SF Signal, and and I was able to sort of put my history history degree to work because I was interested in sort of trying to figure out like where did science fiction come from and how did it evolve over time? So I, I wrote a history column for Carcass Reviews um, for IO9. Okay. I wrote a whole bunch of like space history and military history and military science fiction stuff. And that was sort of like the the weird mix of things that is my background falling in falling into place um, that let me, let me sort of, um, you know, I guess sort of brought me to this point. Like, I, you know, it's a mix of pop culture. It's a mix of history. It's a mix, uh, you know, eventually I added tech journalism and entertainment journalism to the mix. And so it's all of those little various threads have sort of come together to be a really fascinating um, uh, sort of tapestry of, of, of influences that is, is now mm. the book. So it, the, the book itself um, is sort of the product of all that. So do you see, as you mentioned, you're basically combining your your background as a journalist, your background as a historian, uh, focusing on a theme of cosplay, which you're very passionate about. What aspect of writing this book seemed to surface most? Was it the, the fan of the genre? Was it the journalist part of you or was it the historian part of you? A little bit of both, all, both and all, all of the above. Um, there's okay. a couple, there's a there's a sort of a couple of things that that came out of that. One, one is that it, it's I really wanted to sort of approach it from a journalistic perspective, like and which is to say asking questions and, and sort of asking why, okay, why is this phenomenon a why has it become mainstream in the past couple of years and and it really has it, it's a lot more people it, certainly from when I started more people know what cosplay is than before um, and right. by, a, by a long shot. Um, and I, I would credit that to, to things like uh, like shows like The Big Bang Theory or um, yeah, like just this past week, Miss um, Marvel, where mm. cosplay is like a, a, a plot point and Game of Thrones is a water, is a, is a, a water, I don't know, we really have water coolers anymore, you know, a, a, <laughs> a water cooler topic and Marvel Cinematic Universe, or, you know, you know, it was just printing money for, for Disney. Um, right. Those, that sort of fandom that surrounds these things doesn't come out of nowhere. And so I was really interested in f trying to figure out where did fandom come from? So originally this book was supposed to be a, a history of the 501st Legion. Um, my, oh, wow. orig my original editor um, approached me about, I think I looked it up recently, it was about 2016. He had come from San Diego Comic-Con and had heard about like a story with the 501st. It was like, is there a story here? And so we put together an outline and, and um, you know, that, that particular version didn't go anywhere. But as I was sort of developing the project, I realized that, you know, in order to really tell the story of where, what the 501st is, and this is not, this is not a 501st Legion book, but they do, it does play a big role in the, in the book. Um, you know, where does, like, how, where does this, this particular group fit in the middle of all this. And you can't just sort of drop it in the middle, drop it for an audience and say like, this is what, you know, this, this is this group that cosplays without sort of explaining what that is. And right. so I, I had known, you know, I, I'd, I'd written about fan history for a long time. 
or, or sorry, science fiction history. And, and a lot of that comes up, you know, talking about fandom. So I was, I was really interested in, in what that origin was. Um, so cosplay, you can go back to the date where, or the 1980s, when the term is when the term is coined. Um, it was a Japanese fan coming over and seeing these science fiction, you know, seeing a science fiction masquerade at WorldCon, I think in, in okay. Los Angeles. But then you you say, all right, well, the, the, this con had a masquerade. So where did the masquerades come from? And then you sort of go, you backtrack through the decades and all right, well, it was a big part of these science fiction conventions that um, had been running since 1939. So you sort of go back all the way to there and sort of figure out what the progression is. And then you sort of go back and look for even earlier examples of what cosplay is. Um, you know, why are people like all the way back to the question of why are people dressing up? What is the purpose of why we dress up in costume? And ultimately, like, like what I my definition of cosplay is basically somebody is, is, is exhibiting fandom. You know, they're expressing their love for a story or their appreciation for a story by dressing up as a character and sort of trying to bring that that character to life for a, just a little bit. And, you know, it, it's a very broad definition, um, but it's one that I thought was, you know, I don't, you, you can't really limit it to franchises or to just science fiction fantasy stuff. I don't, at least I don't think. Right. Um, and, you know, when you, when you sort of broaden it out like that, you sort of also pull and look at other things that are sort of similar. So like I cover um, reenacting in the, in the book, like where does, um, why is reenacting popular? What is living history? Um, how, how, is the act of dressing up in a costume, um, what relationship does that mean for us to a story? And, you know, we are storytelling creatures. We, you know, if you go back to the first humans, we were probably picking up sticks and like smearing mud on your face to sort of make the story just a little bit more real. And right. so that's what I think is, is the sort of the core tenet of cosplay is this idea of trying to bring the unreal into reality somehow. Um, again, even if it's just for a brief moment, even if you're, if it's not necessarily just in character, um, I still get chills whenever I see it, somebody dressed up as Darth Vader coming towards me. Um, <laughs> and it, it's, it's that visceral reaction. That I think is why it's so important. And it's such a fascinating right. thing to take a look, to tackle and take a look at. Um, because you know, you are, you're, you're bringing something that was previously just imaginary to life. And that I think is a really cool thing to do. Um, because it, you know, there's there's no possibilities, and it's it's a fun thing. It's it lets your imagination run wild. It, it's sort of a, mm. uh, I think I think the concept of play uh, is underrated for adults because you know, we're still human, and you know, we like playing as kids, and we like playing as adults, and you know, it's just another thing that we can do. So that's a roundabout way that this the core of this book came about. Do you see, you, you mentioned earlier that, it, it, as you say, cosplay kind of took off in the last few years and kind of met, you, you also mentioned uh, the origins of it. Did you were able through your research to find that definitive moment where it really took off? Was there a certain cultural event that happened that really brought it to the forefront? Um, I'll preface this by saying I don't think that there's I I don't really ascribe to or I don't really think that history is a singular moment for anything. I, I okay, and this is sort of a, a weird peculiar detail in my my background. I I, made, I minored in geology in college, and there's a um, sedimentary rocks is was something I was particularly fascinated by, 
And the fun thing about sedimentary rocks is that it's a it's a rock made out of other rock that has been squished and pressured into stone. Um, so like sandstone is made of sand, uh, siltstone is made of silt. And as you layer these things up over time, you sort of you don't really have all these really hard and fast definitions. Like sometimes sometimes you will, but you have a lot of these formations sort of merge into other things. Like they'll so, like you might have them sort of taper out in into a different type of rock eventually. Um, there's obviously exceptions. That's a very broad generalization, but like, I, I like the idea of, of that you sort of have all these sort of tendrils sort of come together and slowly something, something ends up. Now you, you do have some hard and fast moments where people start to do this. 1939, uh, July, 1939 is, is one good example. But I think when you're talking about like something as big as a cultural movement, it's, you have lots and lots of little elements that come together to sort of build this stuff up. So if I had right. to go back and sort of point to any I, anything that might have been sort of like the the last snowflake that gets, sets off a snowmobile or, or sorry, it sets off an avalanche, um, you know, one example might be the, the TV series Lost, um, because what that show did it, did is it was a weird science fictiony fantasy horror ish thriller ish show that got a lot of people really interested in sort of genre fiction. Um, and what that did is it got people talking about TV in slightly different ways. And it, it's, there's a reason why it, it, you know, it, it, it's, it had sort of this big cultural footprint is it, you know, it, mm. it got a lot of people talking about it, a lot, a lot of people watching it, whether or not they liked the ending or not. It, I don't think that's really relevant. It's, <laughs> it, it was just a, it was a thing that really got people to talk and what that show did. And with some others like Battlestar Galactica around the same time, it got people just a little bit more interested in science fiction and fantasy stuff. Um, and a couple of years later, you have like you have Iron Man come out, and that was like a huge blockbuster, um, you know, superhero film that got you know it, it, it took the subject matter seriously, and um, a lot of people watched it, and then people kept watching it, and then a couple of years later, you have um, Game of Thrones come out, and that got people obsessing over these chunky you know doorstop of a novel that you know had, had been written by you know a, a, a fan you know there had been a niche obsession for a, a small group of people for a long time um and then you have like I got, I'll, I'll point again to the, the big bang theory which is a, mm. a tv show that you know made fun of nerds but then it became a lot more earnest as the as it continued on and that that i think is is a was a lot of people's first introduction to sort of nerd culture you know you have this group of friends who are obsessed with comic books and going to comic-con and the latest tv show and and all the you know the movies and star wars and you know they had opinions about this stuff and it was right recognizable to people who had been fan you know fans for years but it was also just a a, a sort of a uh a first a first step for a lot of people who might not have been in that in that culture and i think all you mm. need is sort of that idea that like oh i can I like these things. I guess I can be I can, I'm okay with calling myself a nerd or, um, you know, I guess, Oh, I didn't realize that people dress up, but I like doing that. So let me, maybe I could try doing that. Um, right. and so I think that's sort of where these things sort of really, and, you know, alongside this, you have, you know, Comic-Con becomes really big. I think because of a lot of those factors, um, Dungeons and Dragons is, has become this massive phenomenon. So I think it, there's a lot of these little things that sort of grew and grew and they just sort of culminate into this big thing. And all of that is sort of the, um, it, it, 
it benefited from having this big platform of people who are in the 501st, people who are in the, the anime community, people who are in the comic book community, Star Trek community, um, who had been dressing up for years and had, you know, set the the ground stage for a lot of the stuff. Like the 501st had been around for a long time. Um, you know, we had people who knew how to make prop replicas and we had people right. who, you know, knew how to make costumes out of foam. And who, there's this, these vast networks of, of bands who went to um, anime cons and, and, you know, knew how to make these costumes. And so that what the modern movement we have now would not have happened without the folks who had come in the decades before. Right. We had uh, so, Greg Giordano yeah, so said, you know, Greg said the earliest I ever heard was Forrest J. Ackerman and Myrtle R. Douglas, who dressed as characters from the 1936 film Things to Come at the 1939 World Science Fiction Convention. Was that the 1939 you were mentioning earlier? Yes. They were yeah. They were sort of the, the first, I, I would say like the first recognizable cosplayer, like cosplayers. Okay. Not quite what we, we have as for like the modern the modern day stuff. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But like they were like, you know, it has all the right ingredients. There's there's a couple of nerds, they have costumes, and they have a convention, and they are hanging out with their fellow nerds. And so it was funny because um Myrtle, uh, also she was also known as Morojo in uh it was the her Esperanto name. Um, she made the costumes. Forrest gets all the credit, but she made the costumes and, and she accompanied him in costume and wore those for a couple more world cons in the, in the years that followed. Uh, then they broke up and it was, it seems like they, they sort of split permanently. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and then she, she got a, a, not too long thereafter. I don't, I, I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, that, that was sort of like the modern, that was sort of like the spark, like there's enough, like sort of ignition, uh, material, there like the the environment there's fans there was people willing to go meet each other and so he was like he he was the first one he, he uh the two of them were the first to really um you know to do that and everybody sort of looked at them like what the hell are you doing this is weird mm. and but then the next year in chicago more people showed up in costume and um forrest Moreau, they dressed up there's the same characters people joined them they went down to a newspaper office and told the very confused editor like hey we're here to for our inter we're time travelers from the future we're here for the interview that is going to run in tomorrow's paper and um <laughs> you know they also got accosted by some police officers who were like what are you doing you guys are weird and one of them had to show his like government id to to basically say no no we're not cranks we're just you know we're just kind of strange um and then they went again to denver and then again to all the other world cons that followed and that that's sort of where the convention masquerade scene came from. Now there's some examples that I, I found that came before that. There was um, a random uh, cartoon strip called Mr. Skygack, Mr. Skygack from Mars up in the Northwest of the United States. And people, a couple of people had dressed up in costume contests as that character. It was like a, you know, like the, um, the strange world comics that had come out uh, with people making weird observations of, or these aliens making these very literal observations. There's a little bit like that. And so there's, there's newspaper articles of people like um, dressing up as these characters. And then you go back even a little bit further. Jules Verne had um, dressed up as a, uh, I'm sorry, he had a, a costume party uh, at his house and people came dressed up as his character. As you're putting the book together, what were some of the things that you discovered about cosplay that you were 
surprised to learn. What was I surprised to learn about putting the book together? Um, how complicated it is to sort of... So this is a little... I don't really have anything to work against other than the anthology I did. Um, there's a lot of moving parts. And the mm. result... What I went into with the original outline definitely looks different from the final product. Um, both in... in a lot of the stuff is similar. Like some of the structures is a lot of the same. Um, a lot of the bits that I sort of figured we I'd have to write about it, about the same. Uh, but there's um, I'm trying to think of like the best way to put it. Like there there was definitely things that I learned along the way that sort of nudged it in different directions. Like uh, just sort of understand getting a better understanding as I worked the idea of like how economics works when it comes to like, you know, access and equity in a, in a fan community. So really good example of this mid 1990s fandom, like, you know, the, you know, it was, you know, the replica props world and, and final first world was expensive. Like you would, uh, I want to say mm -hmm. Alden Johnson spent thousands of dollars on the stormtrooper costume that he wore for the first time in 97 for the, for the special edition. So that's where the final first comes from. Um, that price point puts it out of out of reach for a lot of people, especially like an, right. uh, like a, a 15, 16 year old fan. Um, but also like a lot of these, a lot of like that world was sort of locked away behind forums that you sort of had to know people to get you into it. Over the decades, that's changed quite a bit. So you have platforms like YouTube, which can provide you with any pretty much any building technique you ever want to know. If you want to know how to build a Stormtrooper, Go into YouTube right now and type in "build a stormtrooper," and I'm pretty sure you'll get a crap load of tutorials. You find the same thing for how to build a costume uh, uh, armor out of foam, or how to make um, to wire up a costume part so that it lights up, or any other number of things. Um, and those are, you know, that access to information opens up the field to a huge number of people. Um, mm the you know changes in uh, you know costume material so you know you can make a stormtrooper out of uh, abs plastic you have to know the right people and you have to have a vacuum forming machine or you know all these other this other equipment or you could buy it you know a kid and that you know right. that, that takes money in, in costs but you can also go out to john fabrics or even just walmart and buy a eva foam mat and with the right directions and the right you know, the right tools, you can cut it and make it look like a stormtrooper. Like foam is a really wonderful building material. Right. I think that was probably like the biggest revelation I had is that, oh, this, this thing is, this is cheap. And that that's, makes it possible for more people to do this. And that's not to suggest that, you know, there's a, there's a lessening of quality. You can make amazing stuff out of foam because it's just a versatile material. It's um, really flexible. You can bend it and heat it and shape it into cut it into any shape you want. And so that's a really neat um, thing right there. 3D printers, the price has come, come down on 3D printers for the last decade, uh, in part because the patents expired. Um, before, you would have had, a company would have had to license the technology in order to make a machine. And now, you know, with, as those patents have come, have, you know, expired, you know, they're no longer in effect, companies all over the place can make their own versions of 3D printers. And so the price drop a snake maker die basement. And that was only a couple hundred bucks. And so when you drop a when you drop a piece of equipment from, you know, hundreds of you know 
maybe tens of thousands to thousands to hundreds of dollars, that opens, you know, more and more people can buy it. It's sort of like the, the personal computer, you know, it was once as big as your house and now it's, you know, fits in your pocket. Right. That means more people can use it. And so I think that was the biggest revelation I had is that just, um, how, um, cost and secrecy can be barriers to, um, entry in this, in this hobby. And that, that was a big, big revelation. And I think, and that, you know, it's important to understand that I think, because what happens is that you go from a field and a fandom that only a very small number of people can really actively participate in. And now you have a, a hobby that, that, you know, millions of people can take part in people from whom, you know, again, might not be, have been able to afford like a full suit of armor, but now they can put their, they can put their creativity and their skills to better, you know, they can, they can actually put them to use. And, um, you know, that built, that expands what it means to be a fan. Um, uh, and along the way, there's, there's, there's problems that get associated with that because, you know, you, anytime you have massive change like that, you've got, um, blowback from traditionalists and people who are like, Oh, well, those are the wrong types of fans coming in. Um, and you know, there's certainly issues to be overcome there, but, uh, access i think is you know it builds that community and that sort of led me to the, the the core of the book is that this is a story about community it's about people finding a shared love and finding other people that out there in the world that like the same thing um i know i certainly found tons of people who i never would have come across in a million years if i hadn't been part of the 501st and some of the people who are my closest friends um, because we love this thing and we love the idea of building these costumes um, and dressing up as them and going to cons or going to charity events or whatever. Um, and, you know, every time I go to a con, um, you know, you, you run into people like, and you, you make fast friends and that's a great thing. And um, right. I think ultimately that's what I hope people get out of the book is that, you know, this is a story about um, fandom as a, you know, as a, is a force for good and it's a force for joy in the world. So now sorry, I'm kind of ram curious, rambling a little, and a little sappy from the original question, but <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. So I, I'm, I'm kind of curious as well is as you're doing research for this book and you've, did you discover that there is a, a lot of within the culture of cosplay that there's subcultures, whether it be based off of anime or fantasy or different Harry Potter. It was there a different, subgenres of cosplay in the within the community oh yeah like every franchise has its own like hardcore group of, of folks like i'm certainly in the the star wars camp when it comes to that right. um <laughs> and and that, that, and that like that's that's my that's how i came up in fandom was through star wars fandom um right. this is actually a, another thing that i talk about in the book is, is that because this is this is a story about community it's a it's a story about you know you you go from this original like 1939 fandom was one thing really it was people who are fans of um science fiction magazines and comic books and it was all very literary based like there wasn't like a bit okay. like there were some movies out there and you didn't really have hardcore you know thing to come fans who um oh except for forest sacrament i guess but like it, it didn't like set the, the public on fire because they were really you know had to consume this this one thing like we have today um, fandom was really like this one small group, you know, group of people who read the magazines that read the books, they corresponded with one another through clubs, um, and to went to world con and regional cons and stuff like that. Right. Um, 
that all changes in 1966 when Star Trek comes out. And what Star Trek does is it, it it's another one of those access things because it's on a mainstream channel it, and it, it wasn't like the highest rating show to ever. Um, yeah. But what happened is that, you know, it, in the, the first, the um, like Gene Roddenberry came out of that fandom, that fan group. And he actually had a lot of writers who were within fandom and, you know, coming and writing on the show. So it was very closely tied to that. But what it did is it introduced a lot of people to fandom. Um, so you have more women than ever showing up and becoming, you know, becoming fans. Um, but you also have people who are just, they're just Star Trek fans. And um, some of the people I talked to were like a little miffed about that. They're like, we really wish they would have come over and like explored like the rest of science fiction fandom. But like, you know, these are people who really just, they just like Star, Star, Star Trek. And they started doing their own conventions, their own cons and their own magazines. And they had their own pen circles. And so that's sort of the, the, the 19, 1966, 1967, 80, uh, 79. Um, that's when, you know, fandom starts to sort of splinter a little bit because now you have people who are just Star Trek fans. And then Star Trek comes, oh, sorry, Star Wars comes out in 1977. You've got a massive, you know, more people join fandom. Yeah. But you also have people who are just, you know, basically just Star, Star Wars fans. They're not really interested in the books. And that's fine. Um, and then, you know, 1980s rolls around you have all these other you know other big blockbuster films come out and you've got more people joining you know fandom anime becomes a thing and again it, it sort of comes back to access because star trek really got big because it was on public access tv and it was you know on reruns and syndication all over the place the same thing happened with anime anime came over you know mid 20th century and it, it started um you know people would dub it or uh sort of fans would dub it and pass it amongst themselves um, you had um, sort of like the, the TV networks playing it um, because it was just content that they could that they could broadcast, and so you sort of again it, people start to sort of find it where they are, and then they come into these much larger communities. So this sort of um, balkanization of fandom has been around for decades, and it, it was it's particularly fascinating because. You have fans, um, you know, coalesce in, the, in these these little tribes. Um, I, I don't particularly like the boundaries. Like, you know, I, if if someone's a fan of one thing, you know, there's, you know, there, there's there's a connection there. There's sort of like these like over overlapping circles. Um, so, like, if you're a Star Star Wars fan, you're a fan. If you're a Star Trek fan, you're right. a fan. You have that sort of passion in common. And what's kind of funny is that um, was it last year, yeah, last year I went to go. Uh, to Gettysburg, uh, to um, one of the reenactments on the the anniversary of the battle over in Pennsylvania, and right, um, you know, a lot of those. I, I was talking to one of the guys who was manning a cannon, and he and you know, I was like, oh yeah, you know, we we have these, you know, we've got groups that we talk in, and we you know, we we spend a lot of money on the cannons and uniforms. We try to get them all right. And um, a couple weeks earlier, I'd gone to. Um, World War II weekend and talked to some of the guys who were dressed up as um, American soldiers and they were this exactly the same as like other members I've met of the 501st. They they are all interested in roughly the same thing. They want to get the costume that sorry they, they want to get the uniforms right. They want to get um, they really connect with that level of history and that story of history. And so you know I think that there's 
a lot of common ground between fans, you know, whatever right. they're suiting up as, whether it's somebody dressing up as a stormtrooper or somebody dressing up as a allied paratrooper or as a uh, infantryman or a cavalryman from the civil war. And um, yeah, so that, that's sort of, you have all these tribes sort of moving in the same direction, but they're all, they're all still fans. So that, that brings up a good point is because you do have historical reenactments now, is that looking at it from a genus species level? Is there a larger family or genus of that fits within the Renaissance fair folks, the the historical reenactment folks, and the cosplay folks? Is all that technically cosplay, or is cosplay its own separate thing because it kind of follows uh, IP, for instance? Um, I think I think IP is a good way to look at it, like. Um... Cosplay is usually just replicating a fictional story. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I, I guess if I had to put it in biologic terms, you you could probably call like reenacting and living history and Renaissance fairs sort of like really close cousins. Um, yeah. One of the things I didn't get to write about in the book, and I, I hopefully I will at some point, is um, furries is another sort of one of those sub sort of those sub um, groups that is again really closer closely related, even if they're not quite replicating like what they've seen uh, on, on a film um, or on a TV show or in a book cover or whatever. Um, So I I think, yeah, cosplay sort of, it's, it's sort of the act of, of playing with a fictional story, but it's still playing, you know, but then the overarching um, sort of the overarching branch that comes above that is, is like you're playing with your, 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 your interacting with story by dressing up in costume as like the big, the big funnel and then it sort of splits down into some smaller ones and it splits down into some smaller ones so you've got costuming fictional or non-fictional and then you have like science fiction ip and then you've got star wars and then you have might have you know the bad guys of star wars the good guys of star wars and then the stormtroopers and then this particular type of stormtrooper and you know it, it's just rabbit holes all the way down um right. and i imagine that the same is true with reenacting like you you might have a casual reenactor but then you have like world war ii world war one American, German, UK, uh, Soviet, uh, so forth. And then you go down like, all right, we are the paratroopers. We're the, you know, we're the tankers uh, and so forth. So I, yeah. yeah, I think there's, there's, there's ways to really sort of split the hairs there, but you know, ultimately again, you're all in this big bucket that I, you know, a fandom, you know, you're a fan of this, right. of this story. So like, it's amazing to think about just even from, you know, a genealogy perspective or, from a family tree, like what's the base root with this? What is it? Costumes from plays? Like was it theater? Yeah, I, I mean, I yeah. That, and we sort of I, in the book we sort of trace back. We trace this back a little bit. I I do go back and sort of like where did where did costume like where did where does clothing come from? Like where what <laughs> there is. I mean, there's there's an environmental element to where you're trying to protect yourself from the world, but there's also what do you what are you signaling to people that by based on what you're wearing um but yeah we you know we look at like you know like like costuming didn't come out of thin air like there there was it was a ceremonial thing um and it it, you know pops up all over the world it's not you know a lot of one of the things i found while i was researching this is that like a lot of theatrical history is it comes out of like you know the greek tradition and european tradition but you know you have people dressing up in elaborate costume and and costume i mean just being clothing um you know all everywhere and I think that that is a very primal thing for us. Like we want to sort of immerse ourselves in these characters and in these stories. Um, and the, the idea of trust is trying to bring this, this, the imagine the imagination to life 
I think is probably the most basic root of all of this. And you can do that a bunch of ways. You can make movies, you can draw comic books, you can draw, you can write novels, you can make costumes. And um, yeah, it's so like over the years, you know, the, like the way we've costumed, it you know, becomes more sophisticated with time. You know, we, it used to be, you might just be sitting up, standing on a, before a crowd, then they, you, you have stages, then you have more elaborate stages. You bring in costume, there's entire movements about, you know, about re like you know, realism or um, how do you, how do you add more fidelity to your story by the trappings that you have around you? And, right. you know, if you bring, if you're standing on a stage and you have a very elaborate set and you have very elaborate costumes, you know, you can bring that story a little bit more life, I think. Or in, in, some, in some cases you might, there's, there's movements against that sort of thing where you might want to just, um, you know, leave it more up to the audience's imagination. And mm. and then you then you move up a little bit further, and you get to the point where we have movies coming out, and um, Hollywood comes about, and um, you know then we sort of connect back up to um, you know the 1930s. So it, it's a as I said, there's there's always something more. You pull in the, the thread of history, you can always find a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, right. and the further you dig, the more you will find. And at some so, point you just have to write the book and, and get it, uh, right. packaged into 300 or so words. If, if people want to buy this, this book is available soon as of this recording at Simon and yep. Schuster, correct? That's right. So the release date is June 28th, um, that's, uh, okay. Tuesday, June 28th, and it'll be, it's available everywhere. Um, Amazon bookshop. If you go, if you go to Simon Schuster's webpage that you've got displayed there, it'll have all of the retailers um, that you can order online. You can also go to your local indie bookstore and uh, buy copies from them. Uh, you can order Perfect. it. You can ask your library. They should be able to get it. Um, if you want to buy signed copies and you're here in Vermont, um, I'll be signing copies for um, the Yankee bookshop down at Woodstock. Um, we'll have nice. a launch event at Phoenix books in Burlington. And um, okay. I'll be up at um, uh, Rail City Comic, or sorry, R R Rail City uh, Fan Expo. It's the, the first time they've run that. It's a little convention up in St. Albans, right. uh, June 25th yeah. uh, and 6th. So I'll have I'll be up there and I'll, I imagine that they will have, the Eloquent page is the bookstore up there. They'll have copies. Um, a couple of people who have bought the book online have actually already gotten their copies, which is kind of fun and irritating because I have not gotten my, my copy. Yet. <laughs> I'm still waiting for them to arrive. So, and my editor has been taunting me with pictures that she has seen that she has, she has a copy of, uh, that she's been taking pictures of and sending to me. And it's, um, I, I just don't have mine yet. So it, it does exist. Um, people or so people tell me, um, it'll also be uh, ebook, um, and an audio book. Um, Eunice Wong does the narration and she's fantastic. I'm really looking forward to, to really listening to her narrate it. I, I, I haven't heard her, her work on the book yet, but I, it's um, um, really just uh, like the, the, like her, her work I, I'm a big fan of and right. um, I'm looking forward to, you know, be, people can listen to it that if, if that's sort of more their jam. Um, yeah. So it, it's, it's coming um, as of like this week, it's just a couple more weeks. So it's, it's pretty exciting. Cool. Excellent. Well, listen, Andrew, it looks like you got to, you're going to have to come back on when you have your other, your other book published, if you're going to have a, um, have your book on furries <laughs> or something, right? Yeah. You know? 
Well, one of the things I'm hoping to do is um, this was a book that we, I, I was like contracted to write like 80,000, 90,000 words. And I ended up turning in like 125. Oh, and wow. um, we literally ran out of space on the acknowledgements page <laughs> on the, at the very end of the book because we went down to the last line and I couldn't add, add anything else. Um, so there was a lot of stuff that I didn't get around to doing. Um, furries was one. Um, I really wanted to write, devote a little bit of time to writing about the uh, uh, Ku Klux Klan masking laws that sort of were enacted to sort of counter that group's influence around the around the U.S. Um, because that weirdly um, popped up at points like stop kids from dressing up in Halloween costumes. Um, there was that. I wanted to write a little bit about sports fans dressing up as their characters or just sort of that relationship. So there's a whole bunch. I've got a little list somewhere. And um, I've got a newsletter uh, transfer orbit that I'm hoping that over the summer, as I get time, I'll be able to write down some of these, like I'm going to call them the, like lost chapters. And right. um, that's something that I would, I'd like to, you know, eventually get to. Um, and it's, that's basically my place to add on, like uh, just my commentary and reviews and stuff that's right. going on in science fiction, fantasy and things like that. So excellent. Yeah. And if people want to, they can also go to Andrew Liptak, uh, com and, Yep. You have all your information. You got your blog there. You got your newsletter. Um, yeah, newsletter sort of taken over the blog, but um, yeah, that's yeah. that's sort of my where, where I do most of my writing these days. Um, right. But yeah, that's where you can find me, and I'm on um, I'm on Twitter at Andrew Liptak, and um, I, on Instagram at at uh, Liptak AA, uh, and that's cool. actually where I I did a lot of my. I, I did some research because um, that's where a lot of cosplayers go. Right. <laughs> it's a very, yeah. it's a visual medium. It makes a lot of sense that they would go there. Um, and so I, I haven't taken a dive into TikTok yet because I just don't want to get sucked down that rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's another, and it, actually that's a thing I talk about in the book is the, the, the role that social media and, and these platforms play is, is a big thing. So, um, right. Perfect. Yeah, it's, well, it's, a, it's a fun, uh, a fun add to all of this. Right. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Andrew. And uh, I uh, look forward to following your success on the book. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate coming on. And this has been a really great conversation. So thank you for, for having me. You're welcome. <laughs>